All right. If you'll take your Bibles out, please open them to the book of Hebrews and the sixth chapter. Hebrews chapter six, as we continue our examination of this passage. Join me in standing, if you would, please. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning again at verse 1. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of the laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, and have tasted the heavenly gift, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God, and put him to an open shame. For the earth that drinks in the rain that often comes upon it, and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected, and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give to us grace in this day. We pray, God, that you would open the eyes of our heart and give us understanding, and we ask for clarity as we examine this passage. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to see. God, I pray that you would set aside everything that is not from you, that you would empty our minds and hearts of that which we brought in, and that you would allow us, God, to have our full attention fixed and focused on you and on your word, that your truth would be honored and, pro- and proclaimed. Father, I pray that you would give your unction to me, that you would allow that your truth would be spoken plainly, and that anything that is not of you would not be spoken. Father, in all that we do, we ask that you would help us to honor the risen Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. The greater the revelation of God, the more accountable we become. The greater mercy of God bestowed upon us, the more responsible we are to honor and obey Him. The greater the grace that is displayed, the more terrible the judgment when we ignore it and profane it. The more committed we become to our own ways and our own ideas and our own things, the harder it becomes to walk in grace and truth. The writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 2, Therefore we must, turn, we must give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how then shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders and various miracles and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own word. So here is the plain fact of the matter. We have seen in this passage a progression of enlightenment, of revelation, of grace and mercy. And we have seen that there are those who, although they are exposed to every measure of this wondrous display of mercy, will turn aside unto fables, heaping up for themselves false teachers who will tickle their itching ears. They are adding the fullest possible measure of condemnation unto themselves. Let me be plain. These are not the children of God. They are the children of Satan. They have been so since their birth, and they will remain so for all of eternity. 
despite any wrigglings that we might see under the preaching of the word or the outworking of the spirit. It's this very fact which makes it so necessary that we keep an earnest watch over our own souls and over the souls of those who God places under our care and into our lives. For it can be difficult to discern the difference between a wriggle and the presence of life. So I want to think with you this morning about what it means that somebody can actually taste the power of the kingdom that comes, the power of the world to come, and still be apostate. That somebody can actually experience things that are tremendously displaying the glory and the power and the majesty of God and refuse to believe and reject his truth and reject his word and reject the calling, the general call of the spirit that is given to all. Um, And the very first thing that we need to understand is what that looks like. Now, this is a reference uh, to the presence of the kingdom of God, okay? He's not talking about they've tasted eternity, that, that heaven opened up and they got a glimpse of heaven and, and they, they saw wondrous things and, and God allowed them to somehow communicate into you know, heaven in that way. That, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the presence of the kingdom of God being here right now on the earth. So let's think about this for just a minute. Is the kingdom of God among us? Yes. Where does the kingdom of God dwell? Right here, in our hearts, with the people of God. The kingdom of God is present on the earth now. The church age is upon us, and as the church fulfills its mission and proclaims the gospel of Christ, we are expanding the kingdom of God. We are moving the the boundaries forward. We are always encroaching on the territory of the enemy, and that's one reason why the enemy hates us so much. We are seeking to take from him that which he has laid claim to and has no right to. Okay, So the the job of the church is to proclaim the gospel, to advance the kingdom. But we need to recognize the truth that what we do as the church is kingdom truth. It's kingdom authority. It's kingdom reality. And it's kingdom being present in this place. When you speak to somebody about Jesus Christ, you are doing the work of the kingdom of God. Okay, And the power that comes with that to change hearts and to transform lives, that is the evidence of the kingdom of God. This began when Jesus was on the earth. And he was very clear about that. Look with me at Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12 And we're going to start reading at verse 22. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Speaking of Messiah. Now when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought into desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, how is he divided against himself? How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they are your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? 
Then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. All right. So I want to I want to just pause here for a minute and I want to think with you about what Jesus just told the Pharisees. Okay? First of all, what was their sin? Well, they had the very person of the incarnate God standing in front of them, casting out demons by the power of God, and they were too wrapped up in their own religiosity to see him as God. So much so that the only thing that made sense to them was that he must be doing this by the power of Satan. Never mind the fact that logically that makes no sense, which was the first thing that Jesus said. You know, he looked at him kind of plain and said, y'all are dumb, because if Satan is divided against Satan, then his kingdom's going to fall. That makes no sense. Besides which, your own children cast out demons, so by who do they do it? Right? It's, it's a powerful argument. But that wasn't the main impetus of his point. He went on to tell them, I cast out demons by the finger of God. And if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom itself has come upon you. Right? You need to recognize the truth that there is a spiritual awareness when God is present that is available for everyone to see. They may willingly blind themselves to it, and if they are not under the call of grace, if God is not drawing them to himself, they will willingly blind themselves to it because that is the natural predilection of man. Man always turns away from God. Man always seeks to ignore God. Man always seeks to exalt himself. And so apart from the sovereign work of God drawing people unto himself, every man will willingly blind himself to the presence of God. But that does not mean that God's presence is not a tangible, real thing that is there to be seen. Okay? What it means is that the hardening of the heart that we have engaged in has reached dramatically dangerous proportions. Now, I want to point out to you that Jesus did not tell the Pharisees you just committed the unpardonable sin. Okay? He warned them, if you do this, there's no going back from it. Which is kind of what the writer of Hebrews is telling us, right? If you turn away, having had all of this happen, there's no coming back. If, if you have tasted what it is to be a Christian, if you have had all of the blessings that we've been thinking about and your heart still does not see God in the midst of it and you can go, well, I tried God, but it just didn't work out for me. I'm, I'm done. There, there's no coming back from that. There's no repentance possible because what happens is at that point, the, the Spirit has sealed you off and said, I'm not drawing him. I'm not going to pull him. I'm not going to call him. I'm not going to... To, to make him alive, which is what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit entails. That's where Jesus' spirit finally says, nope, I, you are not chosen, and I'm not wasting my time on you any longer. I'm not going to call you. This work is an earnest thing, and it's, it's something that the Scripture warns us about. And I want to comfort you in one sense and say this. I have people sometimes, they say, I'm afraid that I've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And I'll tell them, well, if you're worried about it, you haven't. 
right? If it's a concern to you in any way, you haven't done it. Because a person who is completely unconcerned about it and they're willing to say whatever they want and do whatever they want and they don't really care, that's the person I would worry about. But somebody who's, who's consciously aware, I, I said this thing, I did this thing, I felt this way, and I'm worried now, that's evidence that the Spirit is still working on you. That's evidence that the Spirit is still poking you and, and drawing you and making you come. And so as, even as the Pharisees stood there and, and blasphemed Christ and, and said that what he had done was done by the power of Satan rather than by the power of God, even that atrocity was not the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It was close. It was such that Jesus warned them of it. But he didn't tell them, you guys are now going to hell, you've just committed this sin. He didn't tell them that. So no matter how bad we may feel like we've gone, this, this boundary is there, but it's out there. Okay? But the danger is that we often see people who, who are exposed to the word, who are spoken to of the gospel, who have the love of Christ lavished on them by Christians who love them and want to pour Christ into them. And over and over and over and over again, the ministry of grace is poured out towards them, but they don't receive it. They don't hear it. They don't, they're not changed by it. And when that happens, the cumulative effect of, of the constant rejection of the grace of God is to harden the heart. The cumulative effect of the gospel being proclaimed without anybody having any desire to take up any part of it whatsoever is to harden the heart. It is to make them more opposed to Christ and to ultimately lead to the place where there can be no repentance for them. So we, we see in the Pharisees this, this danger. We see that they had the testimony of Christ himself and, and they did not, they didn't see him. And it got worse for them, because then after Christ was, was taken up into heaven after his death and burial and resurrection, they had the testimony of the apostles. And they didn't change their course of action in any way. Um, so turn to Acts, chapter 3, and I'm going to give, we're going to do a little story, and then we're going to read a little bit and fill in a little bit of gaps, because the passage we're looking at is about two chapters long, so we're not going to read all of that. But James and John, or Peter and John, excuse me, <laughs> James and John, they were brothers, that wasn't who they were. Peter and John were, were, were in the temple yard, and they encountered a lame man, and they healed him. And everybody was amazed, and they took advantage of the amazement of everybody to proclaim the truth of who Christ was. They took advantage of this to speak and to declare the reality of, of by whose name and by whose power they had just performed the miracle that they had performed. And so we're going to pick it up at Acts chapter 3 and verse 12. So Acts chapter 3, starting at verse 12. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised up from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, Yes, the faith that comes through him 
has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all of his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all of his holy prophets since the world began. So I want you to notice the mercy that Peter undertakes to extend to them. And the mercy that Peter undertakes to extend to them is to proclaim to them the evidence of their guilt. Now, you might think that's not merciful, right? You might think that telling me I'm guilty is not merciful but mean. But the truth is, if you're guilty and are unaware of it, it is the greatest mercy in the world for somebody to tell you that you're guilty. Because with that proclamation of their guilt, he also gave to them the offer of repentance, right? He told them that the full account of their evil was done, yes, but they had done it in ignorance, along with their leaders. Now, that's the Pharisees we're talking about. But Peter gave grace even to them. He said they did it in ignorance. They didn't know. And in the end, he brought it back full circle and said they did everything that they did because God had foretold that all these things must happen. And all these things happened according to the will of God. And so in the end, yes, you guys were wretched, terrible beings for doing the things that you did, but God was fulfilling his purpose. So repent and be converted and find life in Christ and come join the family. Right? That's really what he's telling them. And it's this remarkable extension of grace, this remarkable extension of mercy. And in it, there is evidence in Scripture that many in the crowd believe. So let's think about the Pharisees and Sadducees, the rulers. How do you think they responded? Well, predictably, they didn't do so well. Because their response to this was that Peter and John were arrested. Peter and John were told plainly, you are never to speak in the name of Jesus again. You do not have the right to speak about him at all in any way, period, bar none. Okay? Peter and John responded in a way that is predictable for them as well. So we're going to skip forward to Acts chapter 4, verse 13. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, so Peter and John preached the gospel to them when they told them, why are you doing this? Verse 13 says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. They realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go outside of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed... That a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. So, did you notice what they just said? We see that something powerful of God has been done. We can't deny it. We can't pretend it didn't happen. We can't, we can't brush it under the rug. But we still want to stop these men from speaking in the name of Jesus. We still want to stop these men from doing the things that they're doing, from saying the things that they're saying. Why? Well, because it makes us look bad. Right? It makes us seem to be the bad guys in this whole affair, 
and all we tried to do was kill him. So that's not that bad a deal. Um, but that it spreads no further among the people. Let us severely threaten them. There's an on-point sort of task. Let us severely threaten them that from now on they should speak no more in this name. So they, they called them and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. But we cannot but speak the things that we have seen and heard. So when they further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old when this miracle of healing was performed. So we see this distinction. We see this line of, of division. There are those who are in Christ and those who are outside of Christ. And what we see in those who are outside of Christ is an absolute refusal to repent. We've seen this power. We've seen this miracle. We've seen this glorious display of who God is. And I don't care. I'm, I'm not going to believe it. I'm not going to believe in him. I'm not going to listen to you. I've seen this power. I've been exposed to this power. For three years, Jesus has been performing miracles in their midst. They know the resurrection happened. They know this, right? They, they are aware that the truth of the resurrection is a very real thing. They have already undertaken to cover it up. They've already paid the guards to lie, telling them to lie. The, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the ruling council in Jerusalem, they know that Jesus is alive. They're not trying to deny that. They're just trying to put an end to it. They're trying to silence it. They're not, they're not telling the disciples, you guys are lying about the resurrection of Jesus. Well, at least not yet. They'll get to that in a minute when the Sadducees step into the ring because they're, they've got a little different issue. But in the end, I want you to notice how determined they are to not believe. In spite of everything that's been done in their presence. In spite of everything that has been shown to them. In spite of everything that has been revealed to them. In spite of all of the truth that has been poured out on them. They still refuse to even entertain the idea that maybe, just maybe, they're wrong. Because they're worried about how they're going to look to those outside of the ruling council. What's the only reason that they didn't punish James and John? Their fear of the people, right? Because everybody was giving glory to God for what had been done. They, they had kind of cut their legs out from under them. They weren't taking any credit for themselves. They weren't saying anything blasphemous. Everybody was giving glory to God for this miracle. Because Peter and John had very wisely done that themselves when everybody was amazed. No, it's not us. It's by the power of God through the name of Jesus Christ. Then he reminded them all of the truth of what had happened. The preaching of the gospel had its effect. Those who were called were saved. Those who were not called, in spite of the tremendous amount of truth that they had been revealed to, nothing happened. They simply got harder. They simply got more enraged. They attempted to bully those of God into silence with threats and warnings. That should sound familiar. Right? Toe the line or we're going to hurt you. Be quiet about it. You can talk about anything you want. You can do anything you want, but do not mention the name of Jesus. That has no place in the place of, of our world. Those words should ring very familiar to us in this age. We are obligated to not give in to that pressure just as they were. For those inside Christ will not relent. Their answer is glorious. 
You guys decide whether what we're doing is right or wrong. I don't really care what you think. But as for us, we must speak the things that we have seen and heard. So where God has worked in your life and God has done a work in you and to you and through you, you must give testimony of that. You can't not do that. You cannot be silent where God is present in you. And and you may try for a while and you may throttle it down for a while and you may do your best to not speak too much so that people still like you. But in the end, if God has done a work in you, it's going to come out. It's going to come out. There's no way around it. All right. So they release Peter and John. They send them on their way. They've got this very strict order in place whereby they say, okay, you are not going to preach about this Jesus anymore. And I mentioned the Sadducees, and I skipped over the passage, so let me just fill you in so you are aware of this. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, period. They believed that when a person died, he was gone forever. There was no life past this life. And they were very adamantly opposed to any teaching on the resurrection of the dead. So it was actually the Sadducees that had Peter and John arrested on that grounds. But the Pharisees couldn't take that up because the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. So it was kind of like the enemy of my enemy is my friend and the friend of my enemy is my enemy, but I'm still in a pickle here, right? So they didn't quite know what to do with it. So they did what they did. They released them. And then Peter and John, of course, were silent and never spoke about Jesus again. No. The very next day, they're back at it. They are preaching. They are teaching. They are proclaiming the truth. Look at Acts chapter 5 now. Verse 26. A little time has passed, but not much. Starting at verse 26 in Acts chapter 5, um, the apostles have been arrested again and released, and they have gone directly from jail back out to preach more. And we are going to pick it up at verse 26, when they have been arrested yet again. The captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Now, those are tremendously ironic words. Now, I'm going to address that in just a minute, but I just want to point out to you right here, there there is such irony in that statement. Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging him on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So they're still committed to having their own way, despite the things that are being done in the kingdom. They're furious that they have been disobeyed. And they are attempting to deny that they are guilty of the blood of Jesus. But I want to have you consider just a few things out of Scripture. So Mark chapter 15, verses 11 to 13 says this. The chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he should release Barabbas to them instead of Jesus. Pilate answered and said to the crowd again, What do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out, Crucify him. Right? Who was responsible for that? 
the chief priests, stirring up the crowd, running around in the circle, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the rulers are running around saying, make them crucify him. Matthew 27 says, when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Huh. So now, just a few short months later, you're angry that the apostles are doing what you asked? Putting the blood of Jesus upon your head? Accounting you guilty for his death when you proclaimed publicly this is what you wanted? How often do we find that kind of ridiculous contradiction present in the world in which we live? All the time. I say I want this, I say I want this, I demand this, and then when I get what I wanted, I don't want it anymore, it's not what I liked. I want something different. And I expect you to treat me differently because I'm telling you to treat me differently in spite of the fact that I'm still doing the same things. In the end, all of this comes down to this refusal to obey, refusal to repent, refusal to to obey what God has said in any way. And the Pharisees are demonstrating to us that no matter what a man sees, if the Spirit of God is not actively calling him, all of the outworking of the Spirit that is absolutely present and absolutely visible will not change anything. Okay? But it does have the impact of hardening a heart. By their own words, they asked that the blood of Christ be upon them. But now they're so angry about being reminded of their guilt that they deny ever having done or said anything of the kind. And they're willing and already plotting to have an encore performance with the disciples. So they can't make them shut up, so they decide we're going to kill them. And just a little while down the road, that begins to happen. So this is always the sticking point. Unbelievers who are struggling under the working of the Spirit rebel at the inference of their guilt. And you'll notice that people like to hear about the love of God. They like to hear that God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their life. They like to hear all the good things. They like to hear all the nice things. And they'll listen to you all day long as long as you do not ever tell them that they are guilty. As long as you do not ever point out that they are sinners. As long as you do not ever infer that they have done anything that is worthy of punishment. This is man at his raw nature. We don't like being told that we're guilty because we are sure of our own righteousness. And in the end, when we're dealing with unbelievers, whether they pretend to be a believer or not, you're going to notice that this is the sticking point in their lives. You're going to see wriggling. You're going to see squirming. You're going to see bargaining. You're going to see demanding. You're going to see asserting that, that I, am, I am a good person. I'm a nice person. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a decent person. Everything they can imagine to do to avoid repentance. You're going to observe that as the Spirit of God is working in them. But what you'll also notice is that the longer that goes on with no change the less responsive they are to any of it. They just begin to be flat. They begin to be more and more corpse-like in their spiritual demeanor. It's a sad thing to see, this progression of hardening. It's a sad thing to see in somebody's life. In the end, the more powerful the display of God's grace and mercy, the more dramatic the reaction is. 
And, and if, when we are convinced of our own innocence and convinced of our own righteousness and convinced of our own right thinking, our response against that is going to just elevate. It's the person who is actually being called, whose, whose foundations are being undermined, whose heart is being worked on, who are beginning to see the cracks in their own pretense, who, who are observing the fact that, you know, it's feeling a little drafty around. Maybe I'm actually not wearing the clothes that I think I'm wearing. Th- those people are the ones that you'll see them saying, I don't quite understand, but tell me more. Those are the people that are going to have earnest questions, and those are the people that are going to sit down and listen to earnest conversations. And they may not respond immediately, but they're not throwing you out. They're not rejecting what you're telling them directly. They're not hating you for speaking the truth. These are people who still are are responsive to the working of the Spirit. But the reaction of the natural man is always, unless the Spirit is intervening, to reject the work of God. There There is no person who responds to God's mercy in any way except rejection, apart from the mercy of God drawing them and calling them to life. It's his work that saves us. It's his work that changes us. They are going along until they are forced to admit that they are guilty, is what you might see. The people who pretend, the people who play games, the people who are, well, I'm going to be fairly religious, and I'm going to do this church thing for a while. And they'll be fine until the pressure comes to bear, and they're forced to acknowledge their own guilt. So, Here's the question that arises in many people's minds. If we know that pushing people about their guilt is going to make them turn off and turn away, would it be better to just not warn them? Would it be better to just not proclaim their guilt? Would it be better just to keep those parts of the gospel quiet for a while until the Spirit's done His work and then they'll be able to hear it? That's an entire philosophy of evangelism, but it's a wrong one. Remember Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4. It says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a, a salvation? Right? We, we cannot come to Christ apart from repentance. We cannot repent apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself used warnings as a powerful tool to urge people towards repentance. Matthew 10.28, he said, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Right? That's a fairly pointed warning. That's a fairly direct statement. Don't fear man. All he can do is kill you. Right? Instead, fear God, who after you die, and in the end you die because God said it's your hour, after you die, is the person in front of whom you stand for judgment. That's the one you need to fear. You don't need to worry about my opinion, and you certainly don't need to worry about yours, but you do need to worry about God's. You need to be very clear about what God thinks of you and about what God thinks of your life. And this outworking of the Spirit, this powerful display of grace, this powerful display of who God is that is being lavished upon the world by the church being the church, Okay, that's what's happening, right? As the church lives out the grace of Christ and actually acts like the church, 
You are displaying the glory of God. You are displaying the kingdom of God. You are displaying the power of the age to come. Because let's face it, Christians, when they are living like Christians, are a completely different animal than people out in the world. Selfless, loving, giving, caring, concerned, compassionate. These are all words that describe a Christian who's living in grace. Selfishness doesn't really have any place in our midst. Now, we don't do this perfectly, and I don't want anybody to think that I think Christians don't sin, but there is a completely different flavor in a relationship born of Christ than in a relationship born of avarice. Okay? It's entirely different. And it must be, because the essence of what makes it is a different thing altogether. So Jesus warned, and he warned extensively. Look at Matthew 25 with me. Matthew chapter 25, verses 41 and following. We won't read the whole parable. But Jesus is talking about the day of judgment, and about seating on his throne and about judging the nations. And he already gave rewards to those who are his own. Starting at verse 41, he says this. He will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and for his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not minister to you? And he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, Jesus is not talking about being saved by our works, but he's talking about the exact same thing that James is discussing, about the evidence of our faith being born out in our works. Christians love. We are known as a people who love, or should be. Jesus said, they'll know that you are my disciples in this, that you have love one for another. And that's evidenced in how we care for one another. You just can't get away from it. And so a person who has no love for the body of Christ, no love at all for the people of God, no love at all for the people that God has put into his life, whether he's a church member or a pastor, that man doesn't know God. It doesn't make any difference. It doesn't make any difference at all what his position is, what his title is, how many times he has been baptized, how many times he has has gone through the rituals. This man does not know God if there is no love for the people of God in him. Okay, And we need to be clear about that, because Jesus warns us so that we can check our own hearts. Mark chapter 16, verse 16, he says, He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. John chapter 3, verse 36 says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Right? So the one who does not believe in Jesus is already under the wrath of God. And there is nothing in the world more hateful than to know that somebody is condemned and say nothing. Beloved, it's our absolute responsibility to speak the gospel in its entirety, even the hard parts. 
even the parts that run the grave risk of offending people. Because the apostles understood that they were the warning. Okay? Their lives, the action of God in them was the warning that the working out of God in them would condemn the world unless the world repents. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 says, We are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to life, and to the other of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? Right? What's the difference in, in how a person partakes of your presence, right? Are you life leading to life or the aroma of death? Which one are you? Well, if you're carrying about with you the Spirit of Christ and you're walking in the grace of Christ, you need to recognize the truth that the answer to that question has nothing to do with you and everything to do with them. Because you are the same fragrance to both people. It just matters how they smell it. Right? There are some flowers that people love that others just can't stand. They're just too strong, or they're too sweet, or they're too sickly, or whatever it might be. It doesn't say anything at all about the flower. It says everything at all about the person who's taking it, because to the other person, it smells wonderful. Did the flower suddenly go, oh, I'm going to smell like rotten flesh today? No. The flower smells like the flower. It's a matter of who smells it. Beloved, when you walk out of this place and you go forth in the grace of God and you begin to live Christ in the places where God plants you, you are the aroma of life and the aroma of death. Okay? To those who belong to God or those who are being called by God, there is something compelling, something beautiful, something desirable in a Christian. They just they look at you and they're like, man, I, I want to be more with that person or like that person. I just love being around them. But a person who hates God, they're going to hate you too. And it's foolishness for us to pretend that we can act like them and make them like us. It's foolishness for us to pretend that the right thing for the church to do is just figure out how the world does things and do it exactly the same with a little Christian twist and then we'll be okay. Our calling is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the power of God goes out in that proclamation. And when the power of God goes out in that proclamation, one of two things is going to happen. People are going to be saved or people are going to be hardened. And the fact that people are being hardened does not mean you're doing it wrong. Okay? That by itself is not enough to say, stop preaching the gospel. Now, if you're doing it in hatred and you're doing it in an ugly fashion and you're doing it in a way that doesn't display Christ at all, then we have, need to have a different conversation. All right? But if you're faithfully proclaiming the gospel in its entirety, which must include a proclamation of sin and people's guilt and the judgment of God that rests upon them, if you're proclaiming the gospel in its fullness, you can expect that some people will love it and come to Christ but most people will hate it and hate you for saying it. And you just have to be ready for that. This is not a popularity contest. And in the end, what, what the writer of Hebrews tells us is that there are people even within the church who have seen the power of God and partaken of it by, by being exposed to it in this way and still do not believe. It's remarkable. 
but it's just testimony to the fact that God is the one who is doing the work. The reality of future judgment based upon the truth of Christ is always a necessary component in the gospel proclamation. It's something that is another warning that we need to take very seriously. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, starting at verse 3. Paul writes this, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and your faith in all your persecutions and tribulations which you endure which is the manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. Therefore, we always pray, counting for you, that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace and the Lord grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is incredibly strong language. That is language to cause most preachers to shudder. I can't say that. People will hate me. I can't tell people that God will take vengeance on those who oppose the church. People will hate me. Okay, don't tell them. What you're telling me by not telling them is that you don't believe God. Because God himself says that he will take vengeance on those who oppose the truth. Now this is not pleasant, but it's necessary. It's necessary that we understand because it just might be the peace that turns somebody's heart away from seeking their own destruction. You see, one of the things that our culture has done is to teach people that they are free from the responsibility of their bad decisions that they are free to do whatever they want to do without any consequences whatsoever. And make no mistake, that's really the argument that's going on around the abortion issue. It's 100% about, I want to do what I want to do without any consequences whatsoever. They don't want freedom of choice. They want freedom from the responsibility of the choices they've already made. And that's the truth of it. And in the end, that dynamic takes place in every single argument that we have about sin. People believe that they can do what they want to do without any consequences whatsoever. Forgive my student loans. Make my mortgage go away. Cause everything that I've run up in consumer debt to be taken care of. Right? I haven't been responsible for anything that I've done, and therefore I shouldn't have to be. That's the mentality. So how do you think it flies with them when you tell them your actions against a holy God will be something that you will be held accountable for and punished for? Are they going to be happy with that news? No, not at all. 
Does that mean that you don't tell them? Well, only if you hate them. Because refusing to sell somebody the truth of the gospel is the most hateful thing you can do. For all of us, we must engage with the fact that the gospel is beautiful and glorious, but it requires us to pass through the uncomfortable reality of recognizing that we are ruined sinners. It causes us to look at our own lives and our own failures and our own frailties and our own sin and our own rebellions and the ick that just comes off of us and own it for what it is. It is the responsibility of the Spirit to change our hearts so that we might do that, but it is the responsibility of the one who has been changed to engage with that truth, to see our sin in the same light that God sees it. Right? That's what we're called to do. And we're called to speak the truth to the rest of the world so that they also might do that as well. Not so that they will be punished, but so that they might avoid it. Because all of our sins have been punished in Christ. See, here's the truth of the matter. All sin will be punished. Every single one. There is no sin that will not be punished by God. Yours, mine, theirs. What's the difference? Well, yours and mine are punished in Christ. He bore our sin. He bore our punishment. He drank our portion of hell. He endured the wrath of God on our behalf. For those who are not found in Christ, there is only one who can be punished for them, and that is them. Those are the only two options. There is nothing else. And there is nobody who is good enough to not need punished. And that's the message we must begin with. We all are guilty. We all stand in need of a Savior. And in the end, we all will stand before that Savior. Right? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Right? We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, is what he says in the verse preceding that. To receive from him the things done in the body, whether good or bad, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. I'm sorry, um, 9 and 11. Um, So, warnings are a necessary thing with the proclamation of the gospel, but they're also necessary in our lives, right? Those who belong to Christ, those who are converted, those who who are found in Christ, no doubt about it, there is a place for the warnings of the gospel in them as well. First of all, it keeps our hearts constantly in reverence of the God who is, right? Right? We need to be mindful of the fact that God is not just some big old buddy in the sky. We need to be constantly reminded of the fact that God is more than us, and he is more than we can imagine, and he is more than we can comprehend. And and he deserves reverence. He deserves to be loved. He deserves to be obeyed. He deserves to be revered. He deserves to be worshipped. And and part of the reality is that when we are reminded of the warnings that stand outside of the gospel, we are partially at least inclined towards more reverence for such a holy God. He's not casual about sin. And we have to know that. And we have to believe that. 
It blesses and it strengthens our hearts under trials and persecutions when we consider that God will take vengeance on his adversaries. I know that sometimes that sounds like it's a really unpleasant thing to say to somebody or an unpleasant thing to think. But I honestly believe that in all of us there is an innate sense of justice. Right? There is an innate sense that we want the guilty to be brought to account for their actions or at least recognize that they have sinned and, and repent of it, right? I, I, I believe in mercy. I live by mercy, right? I, 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 I swing into eternity on a scarlet thread of the mercy of, bloods, of the blood of Christ. That's all I have. But at the same time, I want to make confidence in my own heart that the God that I'm trusting is just, right? Does he keep all of his promises? Yes, he does. He keeps his promises to punish every bit as much as he keeps his promises to bless. You say, well, how can that be? How can you believe in both of these things? Because mercy is freely offered. Come to Christ. Receive mercy. It is only the hardness of your own heart that keeps you from Christ. It's only the rebellion that is birthed in you that keeps you away from him. So come to Jesus. Believe that he will forgive all who come to him. He told you that he would. He promised that. He said, come unto me. And all those who come unto me, I will cast none of them out. Which means that it stirs up thankfulness and praise when we recognize the wrath from which we have been delivered. So we see the warnings of God against our sin and it stirs up praise in us when we recognize the wrath that Jesus bore, that was mine. I should have been the one on that cross. I should have been the one under the wrath of God. That was the eternity that I deserved. That was the eternity that I earned. And in the end, it gives us courage to stand in the day of fierce tribulation and persecution. Man threatens us if we will not forsake the gospel. But God threatens us if we will. Right? We need to be willing to stand. We need to be willing to say, whatever it is that's coming against me, God, I will obey you. By your grace and by your power and by your strength and by your light, I will do whatever you tell me to do. Because I am not willing to turn away from you. I'm not willing to forsake your name. Now, that's nothing that's in you. That's something that God gives you. That's nothing that's derived from your own strength of character, your own strength of will. It is completely the working of God. And as the writer of Hebrews reminds us that the, the, those who have seen and partaken of the power have, have been around the power, this, this creates this hardening, it creates this rebellion, it creates this determination to have nothing whatsoever to do with God. There's one other thing that the warnings of God give to us, and that is strength to resist temptation. Because God's very clear about the fact that Yes, you will not be sent to hell for your sins, but the consequences of your actions, they're yours. Plus, we also recognize that we do not want to put more on Christ. And that reality sometimes is just enough to keep us from doing something stupid. Now, I want to end on a positive note here, and I want to give you a reminder of the hidden promise. Because throughout this entire passage, there is a double message. The one who draws this close and turns away can never come back. It's a dire warning and a sure promise that should cause us to examine ourselves. But those who are in Christ need never fear, for we can never fall this far away, for Christ has made us new.
We are held surely and securely in the hand of the sovereign God who himself ordained and accomplished our entire salvation. Beloved, this is why it is so important that we be adamant about the doctrines of grace. Because if you had any part whatsoever to do with your salvation, even the smallest slice, you would be damned. It is as simple as that. You can contribute nothing. You can do nothing. It is all of God. It is all of grace. It is all of his sovereign mercy. And that is glorious. Because him who began this great work in you will surely carry it on to the day of completion. He's not going to fail with any of you. He's not going to fail with any of us. So hold fast to the truth that if you are found in Christ, you can never fall away. If you are in Christ, you are eternally safe in the arms of the Beloved, no matter what comes in this life. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give us grace in this day. Pray, Lord, that you would bring to mind all of the truth that you've given to us. And I pray, Lord, that anything that I've said this day, which is amiss, would be taken away from us. But that the truth of your word would be planted deep in our hearts, that we would understand it. That it would change us, God. That it would encourage us. That it would enliven us. That it would cause us to be faithful in obedience in the proclamation of the gospel. And Father, I pray that if there are those in our circle of influence who have seen and heard and have become hardened and are dangerously close to being beyond reach, I pray, God, that you would be merciful, that you would draw them back, for even from that edge, you can do. So God, we ask for mercy, we ask for grace, we ask for the Spirit of Christ to be upon us and among us, and we ask, God, that over all of our days, we would know the flavor of your presence. It's in Jesus' name. And for his glory that we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.